This week on Deep Night, the ham loaf looked delicious as the hours stretched on and Dem checked the turkey apologetically. Oh, friends, hello, it's me, Dale Seether, and I'm your host, your buttercream-filled podcaster-shaped egg, and that strand of plastic grass that you find weeks after Easter, and I'm thrilled to be your companion as we enter this hour of regrets and revelations once again. Yes, dead three days or not, anything is possible, and most things are encouraged in the interdimensional zone we call the Deep Night. We come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. On this episode, I want to share some thoughts with you directly. As is always the case when I travel, I spend most of my time just thinking of you, my deep night listeners, and wishing I could carry you with me, whether truly or in astral form, tucked in an astral pocket, whispering incantations and observations into your tiny ears as we go about visiting strange new places, or even strange familiar places. But lacking a shrink ray and not wanting to pay for two Amtrak tickets, I'm doing okay, but not two Amtrak tickets. Okay, this will have to do. Let tonight's episode be a personal quiet car. Push the earbuds deeper into your side of head holes and let my voice dance rhythmically across your tympanic membrane. Tippity-tap, tap-tip-tappity-tip. Oh, friends, I love train travel. First of all, I love Penn Station, where all great rail adventures begin. I love it almost as much as I love LaGuardia. But LaGuardia is not a place I like to linger. No, Penn Station rewards the wanderer, the shops, places like Tycoon, which I think might be an unfortunate uh, choice of name. But nonetheless, Smoothies is a store. I think, and unlike Grand Central with its soaring cathedral ceilings and astrological paintings all aglow, and the oyster bar and the fancy market with the spices one buys in bulk, but then forgets in the back of the cabinet until you move or clean, and you think, oh, I wonder what one uses all spice in anyway, and you put the $20 plastic baggie back in the back because it doesn't fit with the other bottles. See you again in nine months to a year, plastic spice bag. Sure, Grand Central has muffins that were probably baked that day and an entire store devoted to olive oil. But Penn Station has at least two Dunkin' Donuts and two chickpeas and a Zorro's with a very confusing bagel line, a conundrum of a place that once you master as a seasoned commuter, the more superior you feel toward the casual traveler. And, of course, my beloved Penn Sushi. Spicy crunch roll, order up. And where else can you use a restroom with a trough sink? Sure, maybe shop class in the seventh grade, but I mean a sink shared by adults, juggling suitcases and duffels trying to get in next to someone who appears to be bathing. No, only Penn Station offers this kind of amenity for the weary traveler, a chance to get to know one's fellow citizens up close. Now, you're probably thinking, where was my wife, Galinda, during all of this? And I'll tell you, she took the automobile. Yes, she had some healing workshops she was running in Bucks County for suburban wives and substitute art teachers. So we were to meet later in the week, and of course I said, no worries, I love riding the rails, and she knew that. And she touched the side of 
my face with that large, smooth hand of hers, the hands that have healed a lot of tense muscles and lightened a lot of wallets in the process. And she said, Dale, don't forget to wear your nausea bands because they switch engines in Philadelphia, so part of your ride will be backwards, whether you plan it or not. And with that sage advice, she twirled away toward the stairs and out of the apartment, her custom-made Malaysian sandals clacking with every step, that billowing saffron robe making a whooshing sound as she descended in a cloud of her essential oils of eucalyptus, which filled the doorway, surrounding me like a vaporous work of a seasoned skywriter. Love is like a chemtrail, fleeting, possibly toxic, perhaps linked to a global conspiracy. Train travel is heavenly, the carpeted floors, the little blue curtains tucked to the side of the long oval windows, the plastic tray that falls suddenly to receive a buttery bagel, the morbidly obese conductor leaning heavily on the seat backs to scan your tickets, raising his mighty, most likely diabetic arm up to the little railing to insert the seat marker. Now it's yours. You're a part of the train, and the train is a part of you, especially if you... Uh, 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 go for the Amtrak witch in the cafe car. Now, the Keystoner line, the line that I was on, has no cafe car. But sometimes you get a, a great one, a great car full of food. And often, if the mood is right, I'll bring my portable mic and speaker, or even if I don't have it. I'll do a quick 40-minute set for the riders right there. Everyone loves comedy, and everyone loves spontaneity. So, hi, traveler, trying to hold on to six hot coffees in a flimsy paper tray. Let me entertain you. Wine at 10 a.m.? Okay, I'm not judging, but I will give your crummy morning a natural boost that does not require the slippery escape of the drink. Still thirsty? Didn't think so. Put down that marijuana cigarette, sir. First of all, you can't smoke, not even between the cars. Plus, I think your troubles in joint pain can probably be eased with a few old-fashioned comedic stories that may or may not uh, involve comfortable slacks and the trouble with koalas. I love my train shows, I do, and that's why I do them, just to see a commuter's eyes widen as if to say, is this really happening, and how long is this going to be, and oh my God, it's still going, and I do it for free. Well, sure, I'll accept tips if you have them, and I won't turn down a packet of Splendor or an Amtrak cookie. There's something about the light when one gets into Pennsylvania. You can see it on the train. Not New Jersey light. That light is rubbish. The light in New Jersey is diffused and yellow, as if someone's holding up a plastic milk jug to the sun. And that jug was lying in a ditch near a muddy hole, the kind that a crane might overlook before landing in a swamp to troll for small bugs and minnows or something to sharpen its beak for the long spring ahead. The kind of turnpike flotsam that was tossed out of the back of the trunk of a disgruntled Uber driver or a mob lackey cleaning out his back seat before picking up the boss's mistress not wanting to appear messy because that's something he's been warned about. But he can't help it. He's just one of those people who uh, puts a shirt on and instantly it's wrinkled. He's always been that way. The kind who, no matter how many napkins he takes from Sal's sausage hut, he always gets grease on his front by his buttons or brushes his cuff edge against the side of the car and it's brown with a kind of car dirt that only gets worse when you rub it. So that's... Uh, the reason why it's always dingy, no matter how often he dry cleans. And even with the deal the family gets at Mascarpone's dry cleaning and expert Italian tailors, he can't afford to go there every week. So sometimes the shirts stay in rotation for a wear or two. So when he finds a milk 
jug in the back seat, the kind of thing he only kept in case he was on lookout for hours on end and he'd have to relieve himself. But he didn't want to repeat what happened to Jimmy Moleface, so he'd had that milk jug thing on hand. Thing he had, he said to himself, that's what he thought, along with a lot of plans about what he'd do if he ever did get rich or how he'd get out and move to California or somewhere like Portland where they have food trucks and big donuts that he'd seen once on the Food Channel while he was in line at the deli one afternoon. But now he had to go and pick up Daniela Grace behind the dance school where she taught, and he knew she'd say something about his makeshift toilet in the back seat, so he pulled over on the access road and tossed it, along with a Reese's peanut butter cup wrapper and a dirty nickel, off into the muck, and he drove away. Now the plastic would sit there in the sun and the wind and the snow and the salt, and it wouldn't break down entirely, but it would warp in the heat and become discolored from the minerals and the toxins in the mud, owing to how close it was to the refinery and the highway. And if you held that thing up to the light, that's what all of New Jersey would look like. Pennsylvania, on the other hand, that light just puts me at ease. It's clear and uncomplicated, like the moral certainty of a Quaker like the pared-down choices of the Amish. No fancy buttons in this light. It's the angled, perfect sunlight of my childhood, and it's a part of me on a molecular level, you see. My tiny insides nurtured by this particular light. It connects me all the way back to William Penn and the Lenai Lenape tribes and the old groundhogs who burrow beneath the battlefields of Brandywine who were once chased around the yard by Betsy Ross or other women in stone houses with wooden rakes. Yes, this place, my home. And yes, Galinda, the nausea bands were very helpful. You see sometimes when people get on the train and they realize they have to go backwards, but it's so full they can't move. That's what's like being in a relationship, going a direction you hadn't intended, but no way to change it that doesn't involve someone getting hurt or you spending a lot of time in a public restroom. Did I cry on the train? I always do. Something about seeing that light returning to one's ancestral home, considering the passage of time and our own failing bodies. I wept, sure. It's a very spiritual experience, being on a train. Traveling fast anywhere, I think, brings it out, stirs up thoughts. Moving from one place to another, quickly. Of course, part of what makes it so emotional is that when you arrive at your destination while you're there with family... Not just being in the place where you spent your formative years, but interacting with people who knew you before you changed your story, knew you when you made an embarrassing move or said something you regret. Families are the old blog posts of our past. It's all there. And even though you thought you let the domain name expire, somehow it's still going, and all those words describe a you you barely recognize. Galinda met up with us on the second day, and while she had some of the uh, while she had met some of the extended family members over uh, various holiday breaks, this was her first opportunity to meet those really out there cousins and cousins in laws and step cousins and who knows what we are as once and twice removed. So we had a lot of fun explaining meditation and holistic healing to the group, one at a time, over veggie meatballs and onion mustard dip. I love the family, and as I get older, I tend to like them more and more for their reliable, idiosyncratic behaviors, most of all. You want to rely on Uncle Duck getting his ire up about drones or the latest technology 
and its invasion of privacy that he heard about on the news. One misses out if Cousin Duggan fails to mention his love of an obscure 1930s singer. And oh, how we love to gather round and shuck corn and watch baseball with the volume turned way up as Darius's blind mother Dolores shouts profanity-laced greetings as she feels our arms trying to figure out who we are. Yes, it's a household full of life. Whenever we visit, usually twice a year, if we're able, sometimes three times if we haven't been planning well. Now this year, all the usual family vibrational notes were at play, and we even had some more time to get to really sit with and explore each other's quirks and gifts as we waited for the very special turkey to finish its roasting process. Our dear Aunt Dem, short for Demora, or as my father likes to say, short for any name, since she's a diminutive woman, no more than four foot three. She and Uncle Duck drive for hours into the country to pick up a traditional Easter ham and a 30-pound turkey raised by Mennonite farmers in the rolling hills of Lancaster. Part of their journey involves a stop at the Smothered Oak Nut Smorgasbord, where you can dollop huge piles of shoe fly pie onto a plate next to nothing but chicken fried steak, and no one judges you. And if you finish you can go back for more. And if it's your birthday, you pay your age in cents. So it's an altogether perfectly good deal and reason alone for adding it to your shopping destination. There's also a tool barn nearby if you want to look at circular saws or jigsaw blades or plastic sheds for the backyard. Next to that is a store that sells everything else, but mostly stuff for the body. Steel tip boots and all-weather overalls and gardening gloves that go inside your other gloves. But the point is, while you could buy a gazebo out there in the same complex, Dem and Duck went for ham and turkey, and they came back with a couple of buttes on both accounts. I gather they both rose with the sun on Easter morning, and before church, Dem stuffed and trussed the bird and put it in the oven to cook, as she always has for the various holidays. What I'm saying is, this was not her first time going. Now, Dem and Duck were at church. I imagine that was right around the time Galinda and I had tussled a bit with a little... Easter morning coitus, and I learned that one of Galinda's ex-lovers had been an Easter sexual. This is someone who can only be aroused with tales of the resurrection. I guess what really moved this fellow's boulders was thinking about spending three days wrapped like a mummy in a cave. Well, okay, that's not for me. But nonetheless, waking up to the smell of bacon and chocolate eggs is certainly arousing. I think that's a universal feeling. So we rolled around a little bit in celebration. You feel dirty though, don't you, having thoughts like that on a religious holiday? I don't know, I still feel an old pang of Presbyterian guilt welling deep inside. But I bet Jesus had some stray thoughts from time to time, with old Mary Magdalene lurking about her strange but shapely body and its scent of juniper berries and sandalwood hanging in the air outside the cave. That's got to be something. We like to think of our religious figures as being more than us, but part of the appeal of them is that they walked in the same dirt that we walk in. I mean, isn't that a big selling point, that they stood in for us, had bodily functions just like us, drank too much, enjoyed things too much, betrayed each other, or fancied a gal in a loose-fitting robe just like we do? Soon after our coupling, we joined my folks downstairs and said hello to our cousins Dinald and Denit, who had come in from Lake Erie. And we all had a nice breakfast and watched as the children, Dan and Dolly, feverishly unwrapped white chocolate bunnies wrapped in foil and popped jelly beans into their mouths while chasing each other with little trinkets and toys from their baskets. It was not until one that we piled into our cars and headed for Dem and Duck's place for the annual Easter feast. 
I gather that Dem had been particularly struck at church when the minister talked about the salty stream of the disciples' tears and thought to herself that maybe she should have brined the turkey for longer. She had prepped her usual seasonal brine, but on account of the bird's size, she hadn't left it in for the same amount of time. In 88, she made Easter dinner, cooking without her mother's help for the first time. And that bird was horribly dry, just a brown, crispy shell filled with an almost sawdust-like meat that broke apart in our mouths. The children were especially unkind. Without filter, they are. They exclaimed that it was so bad, and as mothers refilled plates with crackers and mashed potatoes, the nieces and nephews took turns spitting the turkey out into the trash. Dem wept herself to sleep that night. She didn't speak to anyone but the mailman for a week and a half, and even then it was only hello or have a nice day. Though come to think of it, how much more does one really say to a mail carrier? The ham loaf simmered in an industrial-sized crock-pot, the kind one usually sees at a church supper or during meetings of fraternal orders held in empty fire halls or school basements. It was my grandfather's recipe for ham loaf, one he delighted in passing on to the younger generation. We'd all squeal in disgust as he described the grinding of the ham parts, the unmentionables, the bits of dust and sandpaper. He would embellish as time went on, of course, seeing us get grossed out to the point that one year baby Delia fainted, dropping like a stone right down to the kitchen floor, grasping at the tablecloth as she went and pulling a dish of cranberry salad, crashing down alongside her, so that when she woke she looked at the red mess all over her Easter dress and, convinced she was bleeding, fainted once more. The ham loaf looked delicious as the hours stretched on and Dem checked the turkey apologetically. Uncle Duck poured another round of Pennsylvania wine, which after four glasses is as good as any other wine, and as usual, that's when he pressed us for more information about what we were really doing with this meditation practice, and could Galinda really make a living off of this, and how one time in college he went with a friend to a campsite out in the woods near the Poconos, and a healer was there doing mask work and what we would now call ritual fire casting, and it spooked him so much that he finished his hot dog slowly crept away to his bicycle and pedaled back to the A-frame the group was staying in. He spent the night outside on account of him not having keys, and he woke up with a raccoon fastidiously eating a bag of trash near a water bowl that had been set out for the dogs. Galinda listened to all of that intently before giving an impromptu reading, which had the effect of scaring me and completely turning Uncle Duck into a believer, so much so that he went and got his checkbook and ordered a full set of weeping stones and a water vaporizer because Galinda had told him he needed more moisture in his life. At that point, the children, crashing from too many sugary Easter treats and covered in a tacky marshmallow film from all the peeps, started to climb up on parents' laps and beg to watch TV because they were bored. And Cousin Duggan found a special recording of a long-dead composer and was playing it at full volume from his iPad the same device he was using to take pictures of all his empty plates and typing the caption, Hopping I could eat already. Har. Hashtag Easter. Hashtag slow cooker. Hashtag my cousin needs a new oven. It would be weeks before Aunt Dem would see those posts, and it would inspire another bout of spontaneous weeping once more while waiting in line at the super stop and shop. By six o'clock, we decided that it would only take another hour, so we put the side dishes back in the microwave and on the stovetop to bring them up to eating temperature. While that was happening, Galinda had started doing Reiki in the upstairs bedroom, releasing some powerful feelings in Mary Doe Healy. 
Duck's neighbor, who had stopped in with dessert at 4.40, thinking we were done, and then getting swept up in a drunken conversation about Russian spy rings and the dangers of off-gassing carpets. This led Duggan to mutter communist beneath his breath and retreat to the sun porch to listen to his music, still blaring from the iPad as he scrolled through Facebook posts. He said he was looking for news about North Korea, but I could tell he was just looking at the page of his ex-wife, because I remembered meeting her and liking her before she suffered some kind of mental breakdown and had to be put in a home for a few years. Apparently now she's better and living in Florida with a pool repairman named Roger. Mary Doe left the room with Galinda drying her eyes and saying thank you repeatedly while Galinda mocked refusing payment. But when Mary Doe rummaged around in her purse for a few twenties, Galinda graciously accepted and quickly stuffed the bills in her organic cotton breast support system that she purchased from an indoor market in Little Ethiopia in Los Angeles. I took another glass of wine and looked out the window, remarking on the silvery bits of foil that Uncle Duck had tied to the pine tree outside to keep the bats away. Bats were making a real comeback in Pennsylvania, partly because you couldn't kill them anymore, because a rare fungus had been decimating the number of bats in the area and leading to huge booms in the mosquito and gnat population. During that brief lull in the bat population, one town had to shut down all of its air conditioners on account of so many swarms of insects clogging the intake vents. That's a town I'll never go to. But now the bats were back, and while we were at uh, 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 my father's house, he was proudly showing me all the places on the front porch that were covered in wire mesh to keep the bats from making nests. I thought about all those bats who had lost loved ones to this mysterious dust, this fungus, and how they might struggle in trying to understand the very word, fungus, rolling it around in their tiny bat brains, trying to pour sonar over objects in an attempt to grasp what a fungus must be and what it must look like in their mind's eye, that place where all bats took information back to in an attempt to understand the world the way seeing animals did. I mean, they could see a little, sure, but mostly they liked the way things look in sonar better anyway. It felt more true somehow, more right. The way a tree branch was described to themselves in waves, it made everything feel more alive, more responsive. Their version of the branch shimmered and reformed again and again, just like a real tree, just like life. And yes, those reflecting surfaces were annoying, but what was this stuff that seemed like you could fly through it like a spider web, but instead was never yielding and was hard to stand on? Whatever that was, it made it impossible to build a nest in their favorite spots. That spot above the little squat tree that rarely danced much on account of its tightly packed bundles of short needles. Instead, it moved like a thick puddle, all at once. I thought of that bat, and it's trying to grok the world, and losing a brother or sister or both, also losing a safe place to make a home, let alone land and rest for just a moment. Digesting a winged bug in its furry little maw, with its tiny pincer teeth, one of which jutted up and out over its lip. I haven't seen droppings in a while, so I think they're gone, my dad said. Since the turkey still looked a little pink, we started the Easter egg hunt. Because the adults were a little buzzy from so much wine and cheese and eating desserts first, some of us went out looking for eggs along with the kids. And when I say some of us, I mean Dinald, who, as we know, is a bit of a simpleton anyway. But he just lit up when he thought he found an egg before the kids did, and he'd hold it up real high in the air and say, I wonder what's in this one. 
before being sworn with children in Easter dresses and church shoes and matching vests, who all screamed in fake and real anger that the eggs were for them, not for Dinald. Oh, Dinald, nothing for you. I'd like to build a wire mesh tent over Dinald, and then I'd just walk away. Being outside as the light started to fade from the sky, I realized that my allergies were acting up. So in a fit of coughing and sneezing, I came back in the house searching for a tissue. In the downstairs bathroom, I heard the hushed voices of two people uh, talking in the laundry room next door. It was a fight of some kind, and it was not going well. I guessed after pressing my ear to the door that it was my father's cousin Dunro and his boyfriend Gary Lewis, a fellow who had formerly been his accountant at the garage door company they both worked for. He had only come out late in life, and his ex-wife Daphne May was now fine with it, and whenever we saw her, mostly at funerals at this point, she seemed relaxed and sort of elated. I think it was tremendously freeing for her to have it all resolved after this much time and to have some answers to some puzzling questions she must have felt over the years. They had one son, Duke, who was a little bit of a mess, but I liked him, despite his weird eating habits. I guess they were arguing over whether or not they should just leave. Gary was talking about his blood sugar and how he had to take his medicine, and Dunro was telling him to eat other stuff. Honestly, I think we're all on the same boat on this one, and no amount of hastily snatched cookie rabbits was going to make up for the fact that most of us hadn't eaten since 10 a.m., and now we're getting close to 7, and the turkey was only one step shy of flapping away. Just as their conversation reached a fevered pitch, I let out a sneeze, which I could not hold in any longer, nor could I do the thing where I stifle it like I do on the subway, because, yuck, I don't like other people noticing me on the train. And they got quiet, and I darted into the bathroom, and I locked the door, and I grabbed handfuls of tissues to try and stop myself from reacting to all the tree pollen in the air. I popped a Claritin or two and waited to see how well it would mix with the Lancaster Merlot. Galinda was dozing on the couch beside a large wet smear on the cushion beside her. I gather one of the boys had opened an egg full of delightful uh, uh, children's toys uh, that was known as slime, and it had merged permanently with the sofa. Aunt Dem tried to dab it with a paper towel and some fabric cleaner, but it looked to me as if that would be a permanent mark, and uh, if it were me, I'd dock that kid's allowance to pay for a new couch cushion, or at least a professional steam clean. It also made me think that wouldn't it be nice if you could just buy couch parts? Sometimes that's all you need to refresh, just pop a new cushion or a new latch thing that holds the sectional together. Dale's couch bits. Listen, I've had worse ideas. By 8 p.m. we called it. The turkey was never going to cook. It seemed that the oven had died, and it chose that day and that raw turkey as its way of telling us. So during the prayer, we bowed our heads as Uncle Duck apologized for the food we were not about to receive, and he hoped we all liked ham loaf and ham not in a loaf and that it would be okay and remind us of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he endured for us to be there. I admired his improvisation, though I could tell it was hitting Dem a little hard as she was sniffling and excused herself from the circle. The ham loaf was superb as gritty and strange as it had been when my grandfather used to make it, covered in some kind of sweet goo that bubbled and stuck to the sides of the crockpot. The regular ham was tender and thinly sliced. The mashed potatoes were reliably lumpy and the gravy much the same. The rest of the meal and what was left of the desserts were consumed rather quickly, soothing bellies filled until then with too much wine, cheese, and licorice-flavored jelly beans. I packed a container for Galinda, whose sleep could not be disturbed, or interrupted at that point. 
She woke long enough to say some goodbyes and roll into the car before sleeping again for most of the ride home. And then the next day, we said some more goodbyes as we filled Ziploc bags full of coconut cream eggs and buttercream eggs and chocolate-filled chocolate eggs and bunnies with peanut butter where the gut should be. All the things that Christians love. Was there an ancient chocolate? Of course there was. And there were baskets because Moses, and there were rabbits because of ancient fertility rituals. So end of the day, it's a super weird holiday. Galinda, of course, took the car back, and since I had purchased a round-trip ticket, I rode the rails once again into the vanishing evening of Pennsylvania in the spring and back through the black murk of New Jersey and all the way to Penn Station once again, where I lugged my bags up the stairs and then up more stairs and then another set of stairs past the people sitting on the stairs below signs that said, please don't sit on the stairs, and then out into another glorious New York night. It was a warm night, and because it was so late, I waved for a cab and hopped in, and I tell you this, there is nothing like soaring down 7th Avenue on an unseasonably warm night in New York with the windows open. The wind blowing around the interior of the cab, drowning out the noise of taxi TV with its upteenth Jimmy Fallon video clip playing on an endless loop, and it's easy to know what feeling reborn is like. You long for the kind of intimacy the cabbie has with whoever he's, whoever he's talking to on the phone. I can barely last a few seconds on the phone with my own wife. This guy's been talking to someone forever. They seem to be into it. I mean, the call had already started by the time I got in. Imagine being so excited to talk to someone that you call from work, and your work is a moving vehicle. Pretty good. That's friendship, isn't it? And you zip down past big stores and fancy restaurants and not-so-fancy restaurants, but everywhere people, couples, you think, those two can make it work. They're complete opposites. And women in yoga pants and women in ripped jeans and older men in two big pants, and they're also too short. Uh, you drive past the hospital that looks like a spaceship, and you ride past the key-making shop with its facade made of keys that you know about because you watched a PBS documentary about him and how he's neglected his family just to make those keys stick together on the front of his store. And you rush past City Winery and McManus Pub and a place called Jazzy's, which you think is a terrible name for a place. But it advertises the best in cuisine. It says it right there on the awning. And you think, what if the best cuisine is really at a place called Jazzy's? And your mind goes to the Jazzy's employees with their Jazzy's polo shirts and what they must think of working there. What, the, what is management like? How proud the owners must have been to put that awning up with the words, the best in cuisine, filling in the part just above the door. So many choices went into making Jazzy's open, let alone have it be a success. And you might do as I do, consider New York, not as a fixed place, but as an ever-changing landscape, once wild grassland, once a battlefront, once Tesla's promising studio, then Edison's ubiquitous streetlights, hotels turn into condos, smaller banks becoming bigger banks, bigger banks swallowing competitor banks and drugstores, eating drugstores and banks until who knows what's what anymore, and then the sun burns out and our ice covers us all again and the ash rains down and we don't need currencies or cough drops because we're back in the caves again, drawing on walls, dreaming of cities. And as I cross the Brooklyn Bridge, a motorcyclist zips by much too fast and another taxi pulls up blaring Bollywood music and my cabbie keeps on talking. And I look out at the water below, reflecting the city around me. And I'm so glad that you're in this city, 
here with me in this deep night here with me. I hope you had a nice break. I got a couple of shows that I want to let you know about. If you're going to be here, if you are here, or if you're planning a visit, first of all, what fun. What fun is this? I'm going to be performing at the PS29 Parents Arts Night as a talent show. Oh, it's a good time. I look forward to it every year. You see you see parents, legal guardians like myself who are in bands, who do comedy, who sing. It's embarrassing in whole new ways. I encourage you to come down to Jalopy in Brooklyn. That's Tuesday, April 25th from 8 to 10 p.m. Help out the school where baby Pepsi attends and soak up a terrific time with people doing things way outside their comfort zone. Then on Wednesday, May 10th, I'm going to be hosting a live episode of this program at the Slipper Room. And my guests are going to be Jason Zinneman, author of the bestseller, David Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. I'm reading it now. It's, it's great. I encourage you to pick up a copy. I'm only in the first couple of chapters of this thing, and I have already learned so much about Letterman, his process, late night uh, comedy. It's a great read. Uh, Ike Ofumato, uh, who's hosting his own late night show, the next one of which is at Joe's Pub on May 4th, I believe, so check that out. And Oh, my gosh, Maeve Higgins. Do you enjoy her show, Maeve in America? I think she's also on the Star Talk Live. Uh, oh, it's great. You got you, you enjoy that. You like her comedy. I'm, I I know you you do or you will. And she's going to be with us as well. And I can't wait for you to see us all together. May tenth at the Slipper Room. Tickets are on sale now. Twelve dollars and ten dollars will get you in. You can find out all the information on DellRadio.com or on the Slipper Rooms website. That will do it for us this week. I'm so glad you joined me. And remember to rate and review us on uh, Apple Podcasts. That's the iTunes thing. Rebranded and are asking us to call it that. So go on over there. That always helps. And also remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night is written and performed by James Bewley with production assistance from Harvest Works in New York City. Music throughout each episode is provided by the amazing talents on the artistic roster of Howler Hills Farm in the great state of Ohio. Deep Night theme by Zach Gabbard, season 9 podcast icon and logo designed by Samantha Mash. Download episodes directly through DaleRadio.com or subscribe and review the show on iTunes. Also available on Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Follow Dale on Twitter at Dale Radio or Instagram at Dale Seaver for behind-the-scenes peeks into the production of the show and the life of Dale Seaver. Thank you to all the subscribers and supporters of this program, and thanks to you for listening.